0: To a special edition of the Darden admissions podcast. I'm your host Brett Twitty and you are listening to a new episode. So in this episode of the podcast, we continue our ongoing faculty spotlight series, a series we're calling office hours with an interview with Andy Wicks. Andy wears many hats here at the Darden School of Business. He is the Ruffin professor of business administration, is director for the Olson Center for Applied Ethics, and he is also the director of UVA Darden's doctoral program And a member of the Strategy, Ethics, and Entrepreneurship Faculty Group. This is a wide ranging conversation. We talked with Andy about a lot of different things his personal background, how he came to Darden, his teaching in the ethics area, some of his courses, what he's researching right now. I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation. So, without further ado, here's my interview with Andy Wiggs. Okay, well, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, This is part of our ongoing faculty spotlight series, what we call Office Hours. This is a chance for you to get to know the faculty here at the Darden School of Business a little bit better. We are officially in our third season of Office Hours. Hopefully you've joined us for some of our recent conversations with June West and Manel Balsells. And today I'm pleased to be joined by a member of our Strategy, Ethics and Entrepreneurship faculty, Andy Witts. Andy, thank you so much
1: for being here. Thank you for inviting me. I'm looking forward to the conversation.
0: All right. Well, everybody, just to kind of give you a little bit of the rules of the road as we go here, I'm going to turn. I'm going to turn off the chat. And if you have questions, please feel free to ask away in the Q and A as we go along. Uh, the first, uh, the first 15-20 minutes, we'll be setting the stage, get to know Andy a little bit better as he shares more about his background and story, how he got here to Darden, what he teaches, these kinds of things. And then, in kind of the last, you know, 35-40 minutes of the conversation. We're going to transition to talking about his research and the work that he does. This is always a great opportunity to spotlight, you know, faculty scholarship, the things that they're really passionate about from a research standpoint. So if you come to learn uh, about those kinds of things, you are absolutely in the right place. And as always, we are recording this session. We'll share out the audio from this session on the podcast, our Darden admissions podcast, Experience Darden, and the Exec MBA podcast, and also the video and audio will be made available on our blog, Discover Dart. So thank you so much for being here. So Andy, I'm coming to you with the first question. This is a very big question. So uh, who who are you? Can you tell us a little bit more about you and your story?
1: It is a big question. I feel like it's only fair since I I teach a class that asks big questions. But uh, I guess this is a good place to start because this is one of the things that led me to where I am um, and the things that I've done it's not just a job it's I think part of my identity is to think about big questions uh I even remember as a little kid I would sit up at night and I think I was eight or nine years old and I was wrestling with this question of does God exist and it literally was racking my brains and I finally got to a place where I could get my head around how I thought about that question but it wasn't by choice wasn't because I sat down I thought hey here's a cool question It literally kind of just grabbed me and I, I continued down that path um but I didn't know where that was gonna take me. I had two brothers, one older, one younger growing up that I think came out of the womb knowing what they were gonna do with their lives, who they were, what their passion was. And lo and behold, both of them have done that. I have an older brother who is a curator in an art museum. He is an incredibly gifted artist and musician. Um, and that's what he's done with a lot of his life. I have a younger brother that matched computers and art and he's made video games his entire career. I was the guy that was kind of pretty good at a number of things and just didn't have that one passion. And it really took listening to thinking about these big questions and then having people in my life who came along me and helped me to see what was harder for me to see. And that led me down this path of where I've gone professionally. I also think it's been important for me personally to be someone who was someone who's comfortable asking questions and not always having clear or obvious answers.
0: Well, I love that. And for our attendees, yes, we're going to come back to this idea of questions and and big questions a little bit later in the conversation. So, Andy, one of the fun things to talk about with faculty is how did you get to Darden? What led you uh, to this school in particular?
1: Uh, Well, first, I got offered a job. That that was a big part of it. But there's a story behind that. When I was a grad student in religious studies, um, I was actually down a path that was leading me towards probably medical ethics or either uh, applied religious or philosophical ethics. But along the way, I met a guy at the Darden School from my mentor in religious studies. He said, hey, there's this guy at Darden who teaches business ethics. You might want to call him and see if he'll teach a class. And I called the Darden School and spoke to Ed Freeman. And Ed, being Ed Freeman, was kind enough to agree to teach a class, which he basically got nothing for. And it was me and three of my colleagues and a tremendous seminar. Loved working with Ed and opening my eyes to what business ethics is all about. With his support and help, I got my first paper published uh, in a journal, the one that I wrote for the seminar. And then I approached him afterwards, and he agreed to let me be his research assistant. So he kind of helped me see the possibilities there. And then I got a job uh, at the time. But for myself, that first job, I I loved that I was really kind of a lone lone gun. I I was the only philosopher on the department. And that's true in a lot of business schools throughout the country and throughout the world. When Darden called, I was going to be one of three, uh, and now we have four people trained in business ethics. We have a research center. We have two chaired professorships. We have this tremendous institutional support, which literally makes Darden a truly unique place. So when I got that call, not only was it super easy because I wanted to work with the head, But everything that Darden stood for made it a very easy choice for me. Even though I love the University of Washington, I could have stayed there for the rest of my career.
0: For those of you who are interested in learning a little bit more about Ed Freeman, uh, there's lots of ways to do that. He has his own podcast, interestingly enough. Uh, He also uh, writes and publishes regularly, and he was also on Office Hours. So an earlier episode, you can go back and check that out. Highly recommend it to you uh, very entertaining conversation and even a few musical recommendations for folks uh things that they should absolutely check out from music front um, you should know he's in the faculty band too so <laughs> he is a, a renaissance man to be sure so um so Andy you mentioned about this focus at Dart and this emphasis around ethics the fact that there's you know centers and support and there's you know multiple faculty members you know what do you enjoy about teaching ethics in a in a business school
1: Well, first of all, uh, to me, I love the fact that when we teach it at Darden, people aren't surprised. You know, there are business schools where it's kind of like, oh, the faculty just kind of threw this thing in there to make themselves feel better. And let's really focus on the important things like finance and marketing and accounting. At Darden, students walk in knowing that this is an important course and it's a core part of the curriculum. The second thing I love is I get to teach it with colleagues. Um, I've got a group of people who are also teaching the same class. We have conversations beforehand and afterwards gives me a lot of insight and perspective on a variety of different ways I can approach a particular case in class. I also love it because, you know, to me, the best way to teach business ethics at this level is through conversation. It's not a lecture. It's not me coming in with the right answer and trying to steer the class towards that it truly is an open conversation. And because of how Darden works, uh, the focus on the case method, the preparation that the students put in, the real focus on engaging and students owning that conversation makes it just a joy to be in the classroom. I get to step in and ask all the hard questions and it's the students are the ones who are doing the hard work. Um, and it's just, it's it's tremendous fun
0: we talk a little bit more about the case method? Because I think one of the things um, that's important for prospective students to know is that there's actually a lot of preparation that goes into this from the faculty side to be ready for this conversation, right? Can you talk a little bit more about what you do to get ready for class?
1: Sure. Well, I mean, I just uh, plug for the case method. You know, to me, there's nothing wrong with lectures. There's nothing wrong with uh, more traditional learning, but I think it is especially at this level, just not nearly as helpful. I mean, we all want to know the the latest, greatest theories that are out there and hearing from incredibly smart people who are doing cutting-edge research is really super cool. But that's really limited learning. Uh, I'm not engaging with all the resources that I have as a learner to truly understand the material. And I've also got another problem. While this idea, this theory may be the current latest and greatest, chances are in a year, five years, 10 years, some other great idea is going to come in and replace it. So I need to ask myself the question as a learner, how do I not only master that knowledge, but develop the capabilities that allow me to continue to learn? And especially to adapt when that theory, that knowledge starts to run out of its usefulness. Any theory has limitations. Do I, as a learner, think enough to understand those limitations and to me the case method says let's make sure we know those great theories and ideas but let's also put them in context where sometimes it's not obvious how to apply that so how can i get the best out of that knowledge but also recognize i need to see context i need to see where there's value and i need to see other things that maybe uh, may also be as important as that theory and it's through the work of me asking questions and collaborating with other smart people in the room that we can really create wisdom, not just rote knowledge.
0: That has to be really interesting in an ethics conversation because you've got you know, 60, 65 students in a room. The conversation could go in any number of different directions. Every discussion is probably a new discussion. Even if you're doing a case you've done many, many times. What's that experience like?
1: I mean, it's, it's nerve-wracking, but it's also exciting. Um, I, I, I don't know if I've ever told this to you, Brett, but when I was growing up, one of the things I figured out was I, I didn't like speaking in public. I really didn't. And I recognized, I didn't know what I was going to do with my life, but I realized that maybe that was something to kind of figure out or to master. And so I joined the debate team in college, and I was an orientation assistant. And those were things that threw me into places where I had to kind of figure that out. But what's amazed me is even as I've gotten older and I've taught now at Darden for 20 years and I was at 10 years at the University of Washington, I I still get nervous before I teach. And I thought there was something wrong with me. And I realized it's not because there's something wrong with me. It's because I care. I'm invested in the conversation and I don't know where it's going to go. And that excitement, that tension before class is really me trying to get my head around when the student asks that question, I'm not thinking about how am I going to respond? And that, it's really intense, but it's also one of the things that keeps me coming back and wanting to teach more. If I taught the same lecture for 30 years, I think I'd get sick of teaching. But because every time's different, it's, it's always a jazz to be in the room.
0: The first office hours conversation we hosted was with Rich Evans, who teaches in the finance area. He's a great he guy. Was, he was saying that in the best case discussions, uh, the students are really talking to each other. And the faculty, you're there, but you know, it's really students uh, engaging around the material.
1: Oh, I totally agree. I mean, my job is to ask the questions. The students are the ones that are doing the hard work. And ultimately, it's really me facilitating a conversation where they're speaking to each other. Yeah, they're doing they're doing the heavy lifting. And that's part of what makes it so exciting to be in the room.
0: Well, do you have a, have a favorite case? This is a question that we got actually in the last office hour session we hosted. And I thought it was a really interesting one. So is there, is there a case you particularly enjoy teaching?
1: I mean, there's, there's a bunch of them that are great. But I think the one that I've really latched onto to is a case called Danville Airlines. And um, it's a decision about whether or not you should let one of your pilots continue to fly. You're a, you're a mid-sized airline. And you find out that this particular pilot, has a his father has just died from Huntington's disease. So, you know, this pilot has a 50% chance of having inherited that gene and he himself may someday get sick. Right now, all he has is a genetic marker. He's not actually sick. But if he lives long enough, he's eventually going to get this disease if indeed he has the marker. You find out that during a routine medical exam as part of the FAA process that one of your people takes a sample and they run an independent genetic test and you find out that in fact he has the gene. And what's tricky about this is the FAA says while he only has that marker, he can continue to fly. But if, as soon as he becomes symptomatic, he has to get out of the cockpit because once you have this illness, there's a, you, you start to break down in terms of your cognitive abilities, but also sometimes in terms of your uh, ability to control your, your body. So if you were in a plane or a car and you started having significant symptoms, it could create a problem. And the dilemma in the case is, do you let the guy continue to fly or do you not? And it always leads to a super interesting conversation. I think it's also powerful because it speaks to something that we're all wrestling with is the way in which technology is disrupting our world. And what are we going to do as soon as genetic information starts to become much more widespread and people uh, know it m- much more frequently than they do now? It, for those of you who've seen the movie Gattaca, you know what I'm talking about, this potential for literally a caste society. Where people who are seen as having better genes or genetic, better genetic makeup um, have all the opportunities and the people who are seen as having inferior genetic makeup end up doing all the, the grunt work of society. Um, it's pretty scary, but at the same time, there's a value in wanting to have access to the information and what we might do with it. So how do we manage that? It's a very complicated question.
0: Well, that's a super interesting case, and um, yeah, thank you for sharing sharing that. I imagine the discussion could go on and <laughs> on for for that one. It's no e- yeah. no easy answers. Uh, and the there. test
1: the test of knowing that it is a good case is we teach the case with the Air Force, and people in the Air Force are divided about whether to let this guy fly or not. So that's that's when you know you've got a good case.
0: That's great. Um, so our listeners may have picked up on the fact that that you have this background. In, in religious ethics, and you have a, have a master's and, and a PhD uh, in this area. How does that inform the work that you do currently?
1: Well, I think it's very consistent with why I showed up in the first place and how I've approached the work I do at Darden. Um, I am interested in religion per se, but I didn't only apply to religion departments for grad school. I really wanted to go to think about applied ethics. Again, big questions, but things that matter for how we lived in the world. Um, so I applied to a philosophy department. I also applied to an American studies department. Um, so that was less integral religion per se, but it's certainly shown up. I I, wrote a, um, I was the guest editor for a journal um, that, re- that involved religion. And there were a whole series of papers that I oversaw that had that theme specifically in them. But to me, religion has always asked us to think most deeply about what is a human being? Why are we here? What is life all about? And those are the questions that always really intrigue me.
0: Well, let's stick with this idea of questions. Uh, this is Office Hours is co-sponsored by Ideas to Action, which for those of you who are attending the session today, great way to engage with thought leadership from uh, members of the Darden faculty and friends of the Darden School. So, Andy, back in the I would say earlier uh, period of the pandemic, you published an Ideas to Action article about the binding power of questions, the importance of asking questions, kind of exploring uh, this area. Um, to you, what's what's so important? What's so critical uh, about asking questions?
1: They remind us of all the things that we don't know. Uh, one of my heroes from early on in reading philosophy, um, theology, applied ethics was Socrates. Um, Socrates was such a compelling figure because he was the person who realized he was smart, not because he was so smart, but he was the only one who realized he didn't really know very much. And if you go back and you read Plato, which was reading Socrates, you know it was Socrates encountering one or a series of people who thought they knew something. And by the end of the dialogue, they realized that that thing that they believed was actually false. And to me, that's been the power of asking questions is, continuing to remind ourselves to be humble, to doubt things that we know while still recognizing that there is reason to believe things in the world, which it's not a it's not don't believe, but it's believe with a certain sense of humility. I also think it's about seeing that questions are things that connect us, especially in a day and a time when we are divided by so much. Um, and I think that the context of writing that article was a conversation about the pandemic, hugely divided group of students who showed up to be part of that conversation uh, that we were having. And you could tell by the nature of the questions, certain people were red and certain people were blue, even though it wasn't always obvious where people stood. But there was something about the fact that we were together and we were asking the questions as a group and we were all invested in the conversation. And to me, that's incredibly powerful as a statement about the nature of our community, that even though we are very different, we can still be the Darden School, the Darden community. And I think that's a much bigger challenge for us in the world today. Um, You know, Alexis de Tocqueville, when he came to the US, talked about these habits of the heart, these things that held Americans together, these mediating institutions that despite our differences allowed us to see us as a common people many of those institutions have faded away. And so many of the institutions that have replaced them have divided us even more and made it harder for us to see the commonalities. So it's much easier for us to just stick with people like us. And to me, convening and coming together to ask questions is a way, is a mechanism of trying to restore some of that commonality.
0: That touches upon something June West was really emphasizing in her office hour episode she was talking obviously communication faculty member and talking about just how critical discourse is in a setting uh like a you know college university business school setting you have to be able to create spaces for students to engage uh, around around these kinds of differences to hear other perspectives
1: i completely agree and i think it's getting it's getting more challenging to do that um and yet, I think that's one of the most important things that universities can do is to create a space where that that kind of work can happen. Um, and if we ever get to the place where we just refuse to have the conversation, I think we're in a very we're in a very dangerous place.
0: Well, let's build on the power of questions to talk about a very popular elective that you offer for both residential full time MBA students and executive MBA students. Uh, yeah. Ultimate questions. So, I will say, Andy. We did some videos with some of our uh, graduates. From, uh, you go back a few years. We were around when they were finishing up uh, LR2. This is Executive MBA Students. And so I will say the folks had come right out of your class. I think essentially, Ultimate Questions, they were, they were really jazzed about it and so excited. And I was just so struck by how every person that was in that class sat yeah. down And we had like a 10 or 15 minute conversation about everything you had just talked about in the class. So this this class has a lot of impact and I think it gets a lot of juices flowing for students. So I I really, just even by proxy, I was super curious about it that day. Um, But tell us a little bit more. What is the Ultimate Questions course about?
1: Yeah. Well, it's funny. It's an evolution uh, in my thinking. I first started it as religion and business because to me, I saw religion and business as much more closely interconnected um, but I found over the years that continuing to talk about it as religion meant I was excluding the number of people who didn't identify as religious or saw religion as negative. And I didn't want to limit myself <laughs> to a much narrower definition of how we think about religion in terms of the, both the content and the students I wanted to think about in class. It also helped me to step back and say, um, two things. One was, um, how could I create a class that instead of being something like work was just fun? So if I start with this paradigm of what is fun, what I just wanna like do, even if Darden didn't pay me to do, what does that class look like? That was inspiration number one. And the second inspiration that really started to drive the class and the framing of it was this idea that we all answer these questions, even if we've never sat down and consciously thought about them, we are all living our lives as though we know an answer to these questions. And they are, who are we? Why are we here? What does it mean to live a good life? How should we get along with others? And if you step back and you think about your life, you are living your life as though you know the right answer or a particular answer to that question. The issue is have you actually stepped back and really consciously thought about that? both the question as well as my lived answer. Because if I hired a sociologist and they followed you around, they could probably come up with a way of saying, here's what Brett's answer to that question looks like. Well, Brett, if I showed you your answer, how would you feel? Is that a good answer? Could you come up with a better answer? What might you want to read, think about experience that might broaden your perspective on that? Who else might you want to talk to that could give you a different perspective? And one of the most important questions for me was, how much time did you spend talking to people about those questions who answered them differently than you? And in my experience, very few students are are engaged in the work actively and those who were, almost none of them were talking to people who thought about that differently. The premise of the class is, we're talking about these questions and I'm gonna make you talk to other people who think about them differently. And as a matter of fact, one of the most powerful parts of the class is I make you be a part of a small group. I design the groups. So I try to put you with people you don't know well. I try to also create some diversity of perspectives on the teams. And four times during the term, you have to go out and have an experience that takes you out of your comfort zone. I tell them, like, you're not going to hang around in the kiddie pool, right? That That's not very interesting. But I, you also don't have to jump into the deep end, especially if you're not very good at swimming. Do something that's challenging, but I'm leaving it to you to figure out how big of a challenge. So for instance, you might go to a, uh, a worship service of a religion you don't believe in. You might sit down and have a conversation with a faculty member or a colleague uh, who answers a particular question differently than how you or members of your team think about it. So it's up to you to craft what that question is or what that conversation is, but you need to have that experience and then the opportunity to talk about what that meant for you as a team. And students consistently tell me, A, they're able to have those conversations, and B, that what they experience and learn is incredibly powerful for them. I think the readings and the big group sessions are also powerful, but it's harder with a room full of 40 people to have as intimate an experience as you can have with a group of four people. But thinking about those questions, um, I, I think once people are aware of them, People really care about it. And I, I think I have a little bit to do with that. I think it's more people realize just how important this work is and how much they want to engage. It. I
0: mean, just to have space to think yeah. about those questions, right? I mean, that's the hardest thing, uh, time, all of this.
1: It is. And the other thing that I tell them is like, this is not a class. It's just about personal development. I, I try to make clear <laughs> um, this has everything to do with business. If you think about great brands, Great brands do not want to sell you a widget at arm's length. If I listen to commercials, if I see how brands position themselves, they are actually answering ultimate questions too. And in some respects, that's kind of scary. How much are we, you know, in the products that we, you know, I wear a cap with a Nike Swish on it. Uh, I'm wearing other branded things. We are, we are essentially uh, clothing ourselves in these representations of brands, saying something about who they are. Sometimes that's cool, sometimes that's a little bit scary, but brands are doing this work as well. How can I do that in a thoughtful way? Uh, What are some of the things that brands do that maybe are a little bit scary, uh, a little bit cultish, and uh, kind of uh, not aligned with the person that I'm trying to be?
0: I would imagine it, it has to be fascinating to pick the readings for this course. I mean, I know it's a tough question, but like... Can yeah. you tell us like a little bit about maybe a reading or two that you get into that might be surprising for our listeners here?
1: So, uh, who are we, uh, I've changed the readings over the years to uh, a variety of different things, but, uh, reading, uh, Harari's, uh sapiens. And, uh, there's a chapter, I think it's the second chapter, or the third chapter of his book, where he talks about hu- humanity and fictions that shared fictions is one of the things that makes us unique as humans. Joshua Green, an article from his book on moral tribes. And again, thinking about the the tribal nature of humanity. Um, Michael Tomasello, who's an evolutionary biologist, um, writing about what makes humans distinctive and our capacity for cooperation and collaboration, that this was one of the things that allowed us to survive when our uh, ancestors did not. Um, Jonathan Haidt's work on moral psychology and how humans experience and process moral information. You know, I'm just throwing all these different things at them that help them get little data points, but also overwhelm them with recognizing, think about, I mean, I, I could have given them a book uh, or chapter from uh, somebody who's writing about physics, somebody who's writing about poetry, somebody who's writing about music. All of this is part of the human experience and human identity. We have to find a way to get down to what's most fundamental. Before the first day of class, I say, take each of the four questions. I want you to have four sentences. What do you say? What is your answer? I don't know if you've sat down and tried to do that. That is really flipping hard.
0: I mean, I can believe that. Four sentences? I mean, these questions that, to your earlier, <laughs> earlier point about like, we all think we know the answer to this, but then yeah. you got to put pen to paper or, you know, you have to type it out and you're like, oh my gosh, what do I, what do I think? Yeah. It's-
1: well, there's also another fun dimension. We, we talk about this early on in the class. There's the we answers. Who are we as humanity? But there's also the I questions. Who am I? That's a very different question. I think, it, I think the two questions are connected. I, if I think about who is Andy Wicks, it's connected to who. what's a human being. I need to know something about a human being. But there's something about my particular path, my story, my history, how I see my life, that is also truly unique. And I need to be thinking about both of those questions at the same time. And that also just adds both complexity, but also a lot of fun, because I can make these extremely personal. I can get away from the chaos of, there's so much information out there I should know back to, well, shoot, I kind of know me and I know my friends and they help me know myself.
0: And you mentioned when we were doing our prep call that this class has been very, very popular. And I think for our attendees here, they, they can understand why. And so I think you might even be working on a book on on these ultimate questions.
1: <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I just started feeling really bad, kind of guilty. There, was a, there were a couple of years where I had um, 100 people on the waiting list and um, I started to feel like I... I Because, again, I take it as people are interested in the topics and the questions, and so I didn't want to limit the opportunity to engage with this work to just the people who could come to Darden and get into the class. So I thought, I want to write a book that helps make these ideas more accessible to people who don't have that opportunity so they can start to do that work on their own. I still think there's a huge advantage to being at Darton and being able to come into a class like this and have that experience because that's very different than what I can do in a book where it's just somebody reading on their own. But we're trying to help them to see the questions, find ways to start to engage with them and hopefully build their own kinds of communities that help them engage in ways kind of like what happens at Dart. But the other thing too, the students realize in the class is this is not the kind of thing like, oh, I did this this work for a term, uh, now I'm done like they all get to the class and they realize, holy crap, this is something I'm, I'm going to have to engage with for the rest of my life. This is not a one semester and done kind of thing.
0: Well, Andy, I'm looking at the questions uh, that we've gotten uh, thus far and a few questions that have kind of touched on technology. Um, yeah. So AI and where all this is going. And I'm also thinking about your earlier comments about, you know, the ideas, the theories, all of these things are going to continue to evolve. And of course, the questions that we're grappling with, particularly around technology and what technology can do, those will continue to evolve. So, you know, how do you encourage, I mean, how do you approach these conversations, you know, looking at something that's a nascent technology and we're still coming to understand the full implications of it.
1: Well, at the end of the class, we do genetics and we do AI and smart machines and, um, I think the class would be incomplete without those because technology is really stretching our concepts of all the questions. And especially as we're starting to see uh, forms of smart machines and AI that are starting to look frighteningly like what humans are capable of. Um, we have to start asking some of these questions about how we perceive um, how we perceive others that may not be fully human and uh, I got to say, on the one hand, it's extremely inspiring and cool to think about what's happening, but it's also more than a little terrifying to think about how close some of this technology is getting to the capabilities of humans. And we have a session on how to go along with others. We talk about differences in uh, going across borders, you know, global business in particular, but we also talk about politics. <laughs> And I try to make students being comfortable talking about political differences. If you're blue, talking to somebody who's red, or if you're red and somebody's talking to somebody who's blue, those are very hard to do. We also talk about nature and other species. And to me, there's a lot out there that's super interesting about capabilities that a number of species have that look kind of like what humans are capable of. If that's all true, what do we owe them? Well, that's also a conversation we need to be having with respect to smart machines and AI. At what point? is there enough of an intelligence of a sense of a being that we need to treat them differently than just, we can do whatever we want.
0: It's super interesting um, to consider. So I wanna transition a little bit to pick up on something that we actually talked about with Manel Bossells when he was on Office Hours just a yeah. few weeks ago, the relaunch of the PhD program. And you are the director of the PhD program here at the Darden School of Business. And so tell us a little bit more about the inspiration for the relaunch of the program.
1: Well, first of all, it's a passion of mine. Um, I feel like going to grad school and having the opportunity to study where I studied and how I studied was an incredible gift that really launched not just a career, but uh, a big part of how I think about myself in the world. So I, I think about the power of doctoral education to shape people. Uh, both the people who go through it and the people that they later affect. Um, I also just want to acknowledge uh, Scott Beardsley and our administration for being willing to step in and uh, acknowledge the importance of scholarship and creating new scholars as a part of the identity of the Darden School. That was a really important statement to make, and I think that's a big part of why the um, the PhD program is coming back. Doctoral programs, and ours in particular, are focused on um, helping to train the next generation of thought leaders, really cutting edge academics who can go out and do the kind of research work that we are doing and that hopefully will be uh, even more incredible going into the future. And that is integral to the Dart DNA. So uh, we're thrilled to be welcoming in bright young minds who are going to come in and essentially learn. One of the things that's tricky about doctoral education, it's different than an MBA program or an undergraduate program is there's no simple way of transitioning from being somebody who's really smart, who can read and critique the work of other people, to being somebody who can then step in and start to create their own voice and their own work. One of the things that I love about our program that we have really emphasized and I know will be critical to the program going forward is the close partnership between faculty and students not just in terms of teaching classes and the intimacy of that classroom experience and the the Socratic method, but that if you're in our program, you will be paired with a faculty member who will essentially be that guide, that mentor, who you will be expected to work with. You're asked to do 10 to 15 hours a week from the very beginning of the program, supporting them in the research. And that's really, really helpful in terms of transitioning into that writing phase. How can I start to learn that? Well, you learn that by being part of the process. And at the beginning, you'll be doing more grunt work, more lit reviews. But as you progress, you will learn to be able to start asking better questions. You'll learn to start being able to write parts of papers and make much more substantive contributions. That continues throughout the the program. By the end of it, you're going to be a much better researcher than somebody who's just trying to figure that out on your own.
0: So our our attendees don't know this, but I had a chance to talk to a couple of alums of the program. And this will be coming to a podcast near you, I, I should note. Um, these are incredible conversations. Andy, I, I will say there's a couple of things that jumped out to me in these conversations. First of all, uh, the people I, I spoke with, when they came to, came to Darden for the PhD program, their areas of interest, sustainability, um, technology, and ethics, um, would have been very early stage. Uh, I mean, we're talking like, Early two thousands on some of these things, and uh, these ideas were not nearly as accepted, as mature, as you know, as ingrained as they you know seem seem to be at this particular moment. And I was struck by the fact that there was space for this kind of thing um, at at darden So it kind of picks up on something you just said.
1: Yeah, I think that's true. I think, A, this is a place that is known for creating space for those kinds of conversations, probably more than most any school that I can think of. Um, And that credibility working with people who have an established identity and a name in the literature creates a certain sense of legitimacy to the work that you're doing. Now, ultimately you have to go out and prove yourself. You've got to go out and write your own stuff. But if you're working with people who are known for doing this kind of work, it's much easier for you to present yourself and have credibility uh, coming in. Um, but it also suggests that the interdisciplinary nature of our program, um, you know, this is a, with the, there's two forms in the program. One's in the QA area. So people who are more math driven um, data analytics, the other's is SCE, strategy, ethics, and entrepreneurship. And we have a very holistic view of how those disciplines are connected. You're not just an ethics person. You're not just a strategy person. You're not just an entrepreneurship per- person. And it's because we see values value creation, uh, pushing you know new ways of thinking about how business can go, all of those are deeply intertwined with each other. And that is an experience and a perspective you'll get if you come um, into our program because all of our faculty have that, even though we have slightly different ways of specializing and focusing on what we do.
0: The other thing that I really enjoyed about these conversations is the extent to which people who are alums of the PhD program we're talking about many of the same things that our MBA students talk about the tight knit you know, sense of community, the support, um, how much they enjoyed uh, getting to know the faculty and just felt like they were accessible and available to them. I mean, that was, I mean, that feels very familiar to, to someone who, myself who has these conversations all the time with current students.
1: Well, again, it's, it's part of our DNA, and it's hard to write and do a completely different PhD program than we do in the MBA program. There are challenges in that we just don't have as big a scale. So, you know, instead of having a classroom of 70 people, we may have a classroom of six people. But if you're still teaching case method, you're still having expectations that students are doing the work. If you still have that close connection and a faculty investment in the learning process and the students, it just naturally breeds this sense of connection among people. And that is an incredibly powerful resource that, A, I think makes what can be a very lonely, challenging experience, a lot more fun and engaging because you've got these other people that you feel like you're a part of this with. Um, And it also fosters lifelong connections that, um, uh, you know, again, uh, the students that we worked with continue to stay connected to us and, uh, and vice versa. And that's, that's awesome.
0: Well, Andy, I appreciate your sharing more about the PhD program. We're recording this conversation, obviously, in, in late July. I know there's going to be a lot more to come about the PhD program in the next few weeks. Um, anything yes. you would want to highlight for folks uh, who are interested in learning a little bit more? I mentioned the podcast conversations that are upcoming, but yeah. anything on your mind?
1: Yeah, that just that we are going to be taking applications for uh, fall of 2023 are um website is currently under development and should be ready to roll here by the beginning of August. And so for anybody who's interested and wants to learn more, please just be patient. And within the next couple of weeks, there'll be a lot more information up there that you can look at. And again, very soon uh, there will be an application that you can fill out. There'll also be information on how you can connect with us and engage with us. If you're interested, we'd love to talk to you and find out how we can um, get to know you better and work with you uh, going forward.
0: All right. Well, thank you, Andy, for for sharing more about the the PhD program and next steps here. I want to pick up on something we got in the Q&A that that goes back to something you were talking about in in your classes of giving people space to engage with folks from different perspectives and different backgrounds and kind of thinking, who think about the world differently um, and approach some of these problems differently. How do you do this? How do you create a safe space um, for this conversation? Because you mentioned, this is not how the world works right now. Um, and we tend to be more in echo chambers.
1: Look, I, I will tell you the conversations that we're having in class today are different than the conversations of five years ago and 10 years ago. Students are self-selecting. They are filtering out some of what they talk about. And I can't stop that. I can't tell you, oh, you know, those all those other classes, all those other places. It's not a safe space, but here you can. I, I can't do that because that wouldn't be that wouldn't be authentic I do believe and I've gotten this from student feedback that people are more willing to take risks in this class than they are in other places but they're still really darn scary I, I've literally had students who want to have a one-on-one meeting with me to say I am terrified that anyone would find out what my political beliefs are almost like they're ashamed not not ashamed of their beliefs, but a shame that they feel like they have to keep this hidden. Um, Two years ago was the first time I included politics and say, look, we've got to feel, we've got to be able to figure out not only how do we navigate those waters, but actually start to have the conversation. And I was amazed that even though that was the topic of the conversation, that the team that presented on that topic and the discussion that happened afterwards, nobody was willing to, to go there. They were willing to talk about how to have the conversation, but they weren't willing to actually engage in it. And I got to the end of it and I was just like, you gotta be kidding me. we can't do this here, we can't do this anywhere. This year, I, I made him do it. I said, look, you are going to find someone in this class you don't know well, um, who likely has a different view of the world and you're gonna, you're gonna talk and you're gonna find something related to politics that you disagree about and you're gonna have a 20 minute conversation about that topic. And then we're going to come back and we're going to talk about your conversation. And I heard from a number of students there were no fist fights, there were no shouting matches, but I heard from a number of students at the end of that session how much they appreciated that and to recognize that they could find something that again, they didn't know about before class. They had to figure it out in the moment that they could have that conversation. And to me, it's taking steps like that again i'm I'm not going to be able to get you to just put down your 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 fears and your anxieties because that's not real right if you do that there are risks but maybe start to lower them a little bit maybe start to take more chances i think i think that's important in the work we have to do going forward
0: Bye appreciate that point. I mean, not easy, not easy to do. And I also appreciate your point around intentionality, right? You have, you, it sounds like you were on a journey with this and you said, no, no, we really need to do this and really pushing people on this because it's a lot easier to duck that conversation. To totally. Say no.
1: totally. And I know we get to places where we're just so angry and we just want to shout and we've, there's no way to, to reason with, with others, but that doesn't mean we just go back to ignoring and pretending like that topic doesn't exist. We've got to find ways to um, engage and be connected with other people and not just give into our tribal nature because if we just become two separate tribes that have one have nothing to do with each other and hate each other, then the American democracy is a thing of the past and our, the ability of our society to function um, is, is gone.
0: So do you ever hear back from alumni uh, who participated in your ultimate questions class? Um... I do, yeah. And so what, what do they share about these questions as they go forward in their careers? They, they continue to sort of think these big thoughts and ask, ask these deep questions.
1: I mean, I get, I get small data points here and there. I don't have a comprehensive picture, so I don't know what students are doing. Um, but I do know one of the most powerful experiences that I had was, I think this was the second or third year I taught this for the MBAE, for our executive format program. We got to the last day of class and a student who i had been working with and kind of made informally this sort of section rep my conduit to kind of how is the class doing where are they how can we create a better learning environment that allows them to get more out of class when she started class she said i i, I want to have a conversation with class before we get into the material and she said um i just want you all to know i i, I think people here feel the same way but these questions are way more involved than we can get to the the end of in the end of a term. And I want to continue to do this. And I always wanted to make a sense of who in the room would also be willing to commit to continue to have these conversations in the future. And like 80% of the people in the class raised their hand. And basically, we're volunteering to be part of a group that would continue to find ways. They're going, they going to make it up. They're going to find their own path. But to meet and have conversation on things related to the class that they thought were important. That's the kind of thing that makes me feel inspired and like, yes, this is this is the work. And That's students a, are taking that on.
0: That is that is a great story and, and a great example how a student can take something from a class and and run with it and, and go forward. Um, that resonates on so many levels with the, the UVA and, and Darden experience. Um, so I want to transition a little bit to talk about the Partnership for Leaders in Education, the PLE program. This came up in our conversation with June West because June has been instrumental in, in helping lead this uh, program. Um, you participate in this program, and I think it's one of the coolest things uh, that happens here, here at Darden. to you want to tell us a little bit more about what you enjoy about being part of this of this program?
1: Yeah. And I mean, to me, it's one of those things you wouldn't typically know, just like you wouldn't know that we have a partnership with a local prison and we have students who volunteer to new training to help people who are getting ready to leave the prison, learn entrepreneurship, get them skills, help them transition from that past experience to what the rest of their life is going to be about. Not the typical thing that a business school is involved in. This is a partnership between Darden and the school of education. We work with school districts from all over the country uh, most of which are underperforming. And many of these school districts have fewer resources. Many of them are typically serving uh, overwhelmingly black and brown communities. They have many challenges. They are trying to create a better experience for young people. And I got to tell you, as someone who has went through public schools and his has, life has been changed by education, there is nothing more powerful and more important <laughs> than giving every kid in this country the opportunity to have a great education, so they have opportunities in their life, so the chance to step in and work with people who—that's what their—that's the—that's what their life's all about—is um, the kind of thing that you would just want to fight to be a part of. And I literally have people who come knock at my door who want to volunteer to come in and teach in this program. Um, it's just incredibly inspiring. I have been faculty lead now for the summer program. There's just, it's a three-year engagement between PLE and the school districts in question. Uh, We're between year one and year two. And it's a week long experience at Darden teachers, principals, superintendents who come in from school districts all over the country. It's usually anywhere from about 60 to 140 people who show up and we work with them for a week. And, um, it is such an incredibly powerful experience. We help them focus on what is your purpose? How are you gonna tell your story that helps you figure out what you're doing and how you get other people aligned with you and then helping them also to think about their school district as a system. And if you think about your system, it becomes easier to pick apart why things are working the way they are and how you could approach that work differently to create different results that better serve the people that you're trying to serve. And that's where we can come alongside with them. but hearing those stories hearing what people talk about especially on the last day where they tell their story i gotta tell you it just it is life-changing uh, i i listened to the stories this last time and at least five or six times chills going down my spine hearing people talking about how passionate they are about this work and how meaningful it is to try to do things to better serve kids in this country
0: well, I, to your point, I, I love talking about that program because I don't know if our prospective students always know that this is something that's happening at Darden and the prison program has come up a bunch on the podcast. I will say any any of the full-time students who have participated in that, they talk about it as like the, one of their most impactful experiences that they had as a Darden student, which is completely understandable. It's incredible.
1: Well, again, I mean, a big part of why I'm here and why I do what I do, and I think we're going to talk about our research in a minute, is, is a reminder that we are human beings. And this is part of what it means to be human is to be connected to others and to figure out how do we make life better for not only just for ourselves, but for other people.
0: Well, let's let's talk about your research. So what are you working on now that you're really excited about? What, what's on your mind?
1: Well, uh, I'm working on the book project. We have a pretty rough draft, but we're in the process of revising that. I would love to think we'll have a finished manuscript within the next six to eight months. We'll wait and see how that goes. Um, I've got a couple of papers that are either forthcoming or just came out that I'm really excited about. Um, and there's one, there's a couple of areas that I, I really get excited about. So the, the debate between stakeholder theory and shareholder theory, Milton Friedman and Ed Freeman does the company exist to make money for shareholders or is it about creating value for stakeholders? There's this academic debate. We can argue about it all day long. I've been a part of that conversation and I feel like there's less new to say there. What I'm much more interested in is what does a manager like the people on this call do with those narratives? If I read Ed and I read Milton, I say, Oh, Ed's right. What is my concept of what it means to run a great company? how should I engage with my stakeholders? What are the things that I do and don't do? This managerial mindset became much more of a topic of, of interest for me. And so I started a series of papers, We've uh, done a lot of this work with Bobby Parmar, um, but asking how does this affect the way you live and operate in the world? And we have shown through a series of studies that it actually makes a difference. The way we think and talk about firms, whether I'm using a stakeholder or shareholder narrative impacts how we operate. There's a construct called self-determination or self-determination theory, and it has three components. Autonomy. Do I have sort of the independence to kind of make my own choices? Do I have competence? I have the capability to do my job well, and I have relatedness. I am connected to the people around me and feel like that those connections are significant. If I have higher levels of those things, I tend to like my job more. There's not only benefits to the individual, It also benefits the organization. So more self-determination is good and the kind of thing that companies wanna cultivate. We show in a study we've already had published that just by changing stakeholder or shareholder, we can have a direct and statistically significant impact on perceived levels of self-determination in the organization. So just the framing, just the mindset we bring makes a difference there. We have a separate paper that also has data that shows things like job satisfaction and perspective taking uh do i actually take time to think about how my employees uh think about a, a, a topic actually talk to them or do i just use a shortcut say well i know my employees i know what they want when in fact it may be very different again we show if you have a stakeholder mindset you're much more likely to take the time and energy to actually find out and look at the world from their perspective instead of just being stuck in your own and you're more likely to have um, higher levels of job satisfaction. And the one that we're working on now is about um, doing harm. How do I talk about or experience harm? And our hypothesis is that if I start with a shareholder narrative, you're more likely to not see things like if I fire someone, if I close down a plant, you may not see that as an actual harm. And as a matter of fact, you may see that you may be doing good. You're actually helping them on their next opportunity. Uh, Whereas if you start with a stakeholder narrative, you're much more likely to say this is our hypothesis. You're much more likely to say I am doing harm. I may have had good reasons to do that harm and I may need to close that plant or fire that worker. And I also need to experience some sense of loss or sadness about the fact that I did that harm, even though I was justified in doing it. A very different way of processing the same experience. And uh, for us, that is super interesting, uh, both from a psychological point of view, but also from a moral point of
0: view. Well, Andy, that is that is really interesting to to think about how you know the the language that we use, the way these ideas can filter through in terms of how we engage. I, I appreciate your sharing uh, sharing that. Is there anything you're looking forward to in the in the in the months ahead? You you are a busy person. You got a lot going on, so.
1: Uh, compared to a lot of my colleagues, I've done a lot less travel uh, and, and have in terms of having things going on, but I am going to be going to the Academy of Management meeting. This is my last year on the leadership track, so I'm excited about that. I'm also going to travel down. We were talking about this beforehand. Uh, I'm taking time since I'm going all the way to Seattle. I'm, I'm a passionate golfer. I'm going to go down to Bandon Dunes and play golf there, also see my brother in Portland. And then um, the end of August, I'm going to be traveling to Europe, uh, visit with a couple of colleagues, give uh, some research talks, and teach a class in Copenhagen. And looking forward to that. Uh, and then I teach Ultimate Questions, both sections, starting in um, in October. So that'll be a lot of fun.
0: Wow, what a, what a roster of experiences. That is that is great. Um, so uh, last couple of questions. So we've always asked you know, faculty who come on here. What would be your advice to incoming Darden students? This is an opportune time to ask this. We've got students who are going to be starting this August, so just a few weeks away.
1: So to me, one of the biggest things I would push people to do, um, Darden is a very communal place. Um, Dive in with both feet. And I think one of the things that people tend to do is flock to people who are like you. Um, I think one of the best things to do at Darden is to intentionally seek out people who are really different from you. Um, Darden is a thick community place, but I think if you break down that community, there are pockets where people just kind of stick with the people that they know that they feel comfortable with. Um, I think Darden is not as well served and the students are not as well served when they just stick with the people who are most like them. We need to find ways to stretch that. And a lot of our community does that.
0: Well, I appreciate that we've been having that conversation with some of our executive MBA students. And as they move into the second year of the program and the executive MBA class of 2023, and being really intentional in terms of, hey, have I met this person yet? Have I had a chance to spend time with this person yet? It does take sometimes that level of focus and effort and intention to make sure, gosh, I I need to seek out these people because you'd mentioned earlier, sort of the central tribal nature of us. Maybe we we just kind of gravitate towards people who are like-minded or similar to us, and it takes a little bit extra work to reach beyond that.
1: I agree. And again, to me, if you, if you buy into the premises of Darden, that's where you should be, but it's really hard. You have to make yourself do it.
0: All right, Andy, last question for you. And I want to thank you so much for your time today, but we always like to give our attendees, maybe if you've gotten interested in this conversation, these topics, all these questions that we've talked about here today, maybe some reading, something uh, that you'd recommend for them, uh, if a book or two um, sure. to further investigate.
1: I mean, this is a tricky question. Yeah, every Anytime you ask an academic to, to name books, they're, they're going to either give you nothing or a library. Um, so the book that really got me going was John Rawls' the Theory of Justice. If I'm going to go back to that. I wrote my dissertation on it. I wrote an undergraduate thesis on it, but a really powerful uh, tract in political theory that has had a lot of influence in my career. Uh, I I just love Harari's work on Sapiens and Homo Deus, if you haven't, and then again, that's a reading that you probably heard from a lot of other people, but really powerful books. Um, I, I also love The Righteous Mind from Jonathan Haidt, somebody who helps us to understand that intersection of morality and psychology in a very powerful way in a a book that's very accessible. And just one more popular uh, book that's related to ultimate questions. Uh, It's not super deep, but it's very engaging. It's called the Midnight Library. And uh, it's really kind of a mini experiment on what we do in the class. So if you're interested in ultimate questions, pick up the Midnight Library.
0: And those are some great recommendations. I, I appreciate I know it's hard. And you're, of course, sitting in front of a book bookcase. So you, you do say, a little bit of reading. You
1: can pay attention. You could write down a whole bunch of other books that you might want to read.
0: Well, Andy, thank you again for your time to our attendees. Um, thank you so much for being here. And to everybody who asked the question, we we're never able to get to all of them. Um, but we so appreciate your engagement. And hopefully, this conversation gave you some things to think about. Um, we, it's been such a treat to host these conversations, to facilitate these conversations, because you get to meet the incredible faculty here and maybe learn a little bit along the way. So we've got one more of these conversations, um, you know, at least here in, in season three of Office Hours, before we move into our, our fall slate of programming. Um, so Robert Carraway will be here on Friday, August 5th at 10 a.m. Eastern a great conversation. He's a member of the quantitative analysis faculty area. He's been at Darden for a number of years. So I am so looking forward to that conversation. He's worked with full-time MBA students. He's worked with executive MBA students, and he'll even be teaching in the part-time program upcoming. So uh, you want to be here for that, but thank you all for your time today. I hope you have a happy and safe weekend. And Andy, thank you so much for being here.
1: Thank you. Really appreciate being involved with this.
0: All right. Thanks everybody. Thank you. And that was my interview with Andy Wicks, the Ruffin Professor of Business Administration here at the Darden School of Business. As always, if you have any comments, suggestions, requests, anything you'd like for us to cover here on the podcast, we're all ears we can be reached at Darden, that's D-A-R-D-E-N at Virginia.edu. Until next time, stay safe, be well, and thanks for listening.